0: up this series that we've been doing on Ecclesiastes. And uh, we started this series uh, about a month ago and we've, we really haven't covered Ecclesiastes thoroughly. There's so much in it. It would be, it would take forever to go through the whole thing. We just sort of been skimming over and touching on different parts of it. And so we've been talking about this book of the Bible called Ecclesiastes and uh, we called it, uh, what a not so wonderful world, right? And if you were here when we started it, we had a little recording of Louis Armstrong going, what a wonderful world, right? And some of us were like, it is a wonderful world. And others of us were like, it's not a wonderful world. Have you seen the news lately, right? And just trying to figure all of that out. And we all go through times where we go, I'm not sure what the point is. I'm not sure what the meaning is. Sometimes we have really, really tough days, and if we have a number of tough days in a row, we just end up going, I just want to throw my hands up and give up. It's just It's too much, and I don't know how to figure it out. I don't know what the meaning of life is. And, and you end up going, whether it's politics, because if you watch too much politics or you take in too much politics, it can really just make you go, right? Or maybe at the job that you have or the job that you're looking for, you can't just figure it out and it gets to be a little bit too much and you just go, ah, right? Or maybe in your marriage because everybody else's marriage is perfect except yours, right? That's not true. That was a little joke, right? There's moments in marriage where we go, I don't know. It's really hard and it's difficult. And sometimes we just want to, we all have moments of throwing our hands up and going, can I just, can I just give up? Can I just escape? I don't want to, I don't want to do this anymore. And yet here we are still in our own skin, still on this planet because gravity holds us here and, uh, and we can't really escape life even on the days when it seems meaningless except if we go on vacation and turn our phones off. But even then, it's only, it's only temporary. So we look for meaning, which is what Ecclesiastes is all about, looking for the meaning of life. And, and as we've been going through this series, we said that some of us look for meaning in our jobs, in our work, and that's okay, something that we're passionate about, something we enjoy doing, something that hopefully somebody will pay us for so we can pay our bills uh, in doing our work. And there's nothing wrong with that. We said work is a, work is a good thing that god's creation god's framework uh, says work is a good thing and there's nothing wrong it's part of our nature to find satisfaction in a job well done it's it's okay that we have an expectation that we can do work and that and that we'll find some satisfaction in it and and have something come from that and yet and yet i mean if we're honest we find that if there's moments even if we're in the best job in the world like the best job ever even if you're the lead pastor of Evangel Church in Montreal, which is totally the best job ever, even if you're in that job, there are going to be moments where you go, mm, it's not the best of days today. Not for me, but for others, right? And, and we, can, we can go through, and somebody goes, well, if you just do what you love, you'll never work another day in your life. Oh, come on. That's not true. Even if you're doing what you love, you're still going to have days where it's, it's work. It's just work. It just is. And, and, or we end up in a job where we end up getting laid off, and, and our identity was spaced in that, and our, our value was, was based on what we do, and now we're laid off, and we don't know who we are anymore. Or we lose the ability to do our job, maybe for health reasons or scheduling, or we end up having to move somewhere, and we can't do it, and now I don't know where I belong. I don't know where I fit. Or... We still are working at that job, but suddenly we realize, you know, it's just not all we thought it was going to be. It's not making the difference we thought it was going to make. It turns out there's stuff that happens behind the scenes we didn't know about, and we feel a little bit disillusioned. And then we just, we don't know what to do, and and suddenly work doesn't have the meaning anymore. And then we talked last week about pleasure. Okay, if we're going to look for the meaning of life, maybe let's see if we can look for it in pleasure. And we said last week, nothing wrong with pleasure nothing wrong with enjoying life a little bit. In fact, we gave out candy and had a good time a bit last Sunday. And we talked last week about all the kinds of things that bring pleasure. But we said, you know, everybody knows if you have pleasure without any boundaries, pleasure without any guidelines, pleasure without any limits at all, you start to you start to run into problems, right? It starts to become a distraction maybe to the important things in life. Uh, it maybe becomes addictive and maybe it might be a substance or it might be our phones as we just check Instagram one more time. Some of you are doing it right now to see if somebody else liked the picture that we had, right? That little like gives us a little woo, little thrill, little moment of pleasure. And now we're just a little bit more addicted. And so it can become addictive or it can become destructive. Pleasure can become destructive. We talked last week about food and, and how good food tastes and how good good food tastes. And yet here we are in a continent in North America that is just, you know, filled with obesity and diabetes and heart disease and gluttony and uh, we're kind of, it's pleasure gone wild. Or even if it's not destructive or it's not addictive, the trap of pleasure is it just becomes boring, right? How many know that children, when they come to the end of the school year, and you all were children once, you come to the end of the school year and you're like, woohoo, right? And for a day and a half, you're like, oh my goodness, the world is amazing, right? And then two days later, you go, I'm bored, okay? Pleasure gets boring after a while. It just, we lose our ability to, to simply enjoy the moment that we're in because the trap of pleasure is to go, well, I need more. And so instead of pausing and enjoying the moment that we're in, we go, okay, that was good. What's the next one? What's the next one? What's the next one? And we stop living in a space of gratitude and a space of contentment and a space that just gives some value because we go, well, there has to be more, 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 more all the time. And so, so then pleasure gets meaningless as well. And so we've been going through this series on Ecclesiastes, saying that Ecclesiastes explores all of this. It's the writer of Ecclesiastes had all the motivation And all the resources, apparently he had the time and the money to try everything, everything in his search for the meaning of life. And over and over and over again, as he tries this or he tries that or he tries something else, trying to find the meaning of life, over and over again, his conclusion is everything is meaningless. Yay. Yay. And it's hard for us to read Ecclesiastes as people of faith because we don't really like that everything is meaningless thing. And uh, it's not comfortable. It doesn't make us feel better. It's not a happily ever after moment. And if it's on its own, then it can really just lead to despair and going, well, I guess I just might as well give up then because everything's meaningless. So we've been taking Ecclesiastes and going, okay, it's in our Bibles. God has it there. Let's look at it not only on its own, but in the context of Scripture and in the context of our faith. And let's try to find the bigger piece. Let's try to let's let ourselves ask the tough questions of faith so that our faith gets deeper and gets a little stronger foundation. But, but let's do it in a way that, that brings in the context, and then we're going to find hope at the end. So that's what we've been doing um, for a few weeks. And uh, one of the things that we've returned to in this journey has been that even good things in our life, like work or pleasure or some of the other things, they all have their place. But they don't get God's place. And if we put those things in God's place, we're going to find out that they're inadequate and they get a little bit disappointing. So today, okay, today we're going to do one more topic. And we're actually, the topic today we're going to look at is we're going to see if we can find the meaning of life uh, with, with the writer of Ecclesiastes in talking about wisdom. Well, I mean, obviously, the meaning is going to be found there because, because first of all, wisdom is very noble, right? It's a very noble thing to pursue. And, and it actually sounds more noble if you say it in a deep voice like this, wisdom, like that, right? Doesn't that sound, oh, that's profound, wisdom. I mean, everybody knows <laughs> you can't find the meaning of life in work and you can't find the meaning of life in pleasure, but wisdom. Mm. And then you just go, because mm, it makes you sound very profound and very wise, right? Why don't you try that with me just right now? Just go mm, like that. Don't you feel wiser now? And so we're going to look at wisdom, because uh, that's where... So the writer of Ecclesiastes, he's, he pursued wisdom. Obviously, this is going to turn out really well. So Ecclesiastes 1, verse 13, this is what he said. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I've seen all the things that are done under the sun, and all of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. And I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. This guy has a healthy self-esteem, by the way. I have been wiser than anyone that has ever come before me. Okay, good. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then... I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly, but I learned that this, too, is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow, and the more knowledge, the more grief. Well, isn't that just great? (laughs) It seems he struck out in this search for the meaning of life, In the area of wisdom, too, he explored all the wisdom. He explored all the philosophy. He explored all the education, all the knowledge. And he ends up saying it's all meaningless, useless. And it's worse than meaningless. It actually made his life worse, he said, exploring wisdom. It actually made life more difficult because maybe ignorance really is bliss because as he explored wisdom and tried to figure out the answers, the more he learned, the more he realized how powerless he was. He said, what is crooked cannot be straightened. And the more that he learned, the more he saw everything that's wrong in the world. And so he goes, well, with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. And it it seems like by, by the way he's saying this and the way that he's, why he's disappointed in wisdom, it seems like he didn't just want wisdom for the sake of wisdom, just for this cold idea of just learning and having knowledge. But it seemed like he expected that if he really put his mind to it, I mean, if he really went for it and really went, okay, I am going to do, that if he really grasped everything that he needed to grasp, then he would find the answers. And that if he could find the answers, then he would understand everything. And then if he could understand everything, well, then he could fix everything. And it seems that he expected that if he really put his mind to it, well, then he could be like God. And that's where, isn't that what the problem was in the Garden of Eden way back at the beginning? This whole be like God, mm, that's where you go, mm, okay, turn the person beside you, go, mm, and some of you right now are going, I missed it. Well, stay awake, Okay. Genesis chapter 3, this is at the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, at the beginning of creation before there's any sin in the world. This is the moment, okay? Genesis 3 verse 1, the serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. And one day he asked the woman, Eve, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Well, of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it, and if you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows. Okay, now you have to say that with some attitude because he's planting something here in her heart. And so he's going, God knows, like that. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, (gasps) knowing both good and evil. Isn't that exciting? You'll have all the knowledge, all the wisdom. You'll know both good and evil, and that will make you like God. And he plants this suspicion that God is hiding something from them. He plants this suspicion in Adam and Eve that that the God who gave them life, that the God who placed them in this beautiful garden where every need is met and they have fulfilling work and all of this, and they're on this wonderful globe spinning in a wonderful universe, and God has created all of that for them, and he plants this suspicion in them that the God who has done all of this for them and given them everything, he plants this suspicion that that God is hiding something from them. God knows and you don't. That God is hiding something and that they're missing out on something. That's what He plants in their hearts. And so He goes, God knows if you eat this, you'll be like God. You're going to know good and evil. This idea that with enough knowledge and wisdom, you will be like God. Now, Let's just pause just for a moment and consider the idea of why on earth you would want to know evil. (laughs) You can know both good and evil. Why would anyone want to know evil? Most of us wish we could unknow evil. Most of us, if we apply our brains, really try to imagine. Can you just imagine a world without evil? I, I actually can't. I tried this week. Can you imagine a world that has never known evil? Literally no greed, no selfishness. No oppression, no abuse, no broken relationships, no sickness, no um, discrimination, no, no victims of any kind. I mean, it strains the brain to even try to imagine this, and yet he presents it as something good. You will know both good and evil, and that will help you to know God. And he says, you will be like God if you know everything. God knows You will be like God if you know everything. And that's where it all went wrong in the first place. That's where it went wrong in the Garden of Eden. So it's no surprise then when we come back to Ecclesiastes, when the writer or the teacher in Ecclesiastes, this wisdom guy, decides to try again, and he says, I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom everything that is done under the heavens. The more you read Ecclesiastes, the more you start to see, it's not that he was going, I just want to gain knowledge. It wasn't separate from life. It wasn't that. It was, I want to learn so that I can understand everything, and then I can know everything, and then I can fix or control everything, and if I know everything, then I can be like God. And just like the first time in the Garden of Eden, It didn't work. It actually made things worse. With much wisdom comes much sorrow, and with more knowledge comes more grief. Let's look a little bit more. The writer in Ecclesiastes says in chapter 4, verse 1, Again, I looked, and I saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. And I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors. And they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is the one who has never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. And I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Yay! (laughs) And then he says in chapter 5, verse 8 if you see the poor oppressed in a district, and justice and rights are denied, don't even be surprised at such things. For one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are others higher still, and the increase from the land is taken by all, and the king himself profits. From the fields. You know, it's a really awful feeling, I'm thinking, for this, this guy, this teacher, who said, I'm going to find the meaning of life, and I'm going to find it through wisdom. And it's really awful when you search to learn, and, and, and you have this idea that maybe if you understand, and maybe if you gain enough knowledge and enough wisdom, then maybe you can actually make things better, and you can control things, and you can, and it must be so discouraging to have gone to all that work, and what you actually learn is you can't control anything. You can't, you can't fix most of it. And he gets completely overwhelmed by this idea. And sometimes we do too. So in, the, in, in today's world, uh, especially among non- non-profits or charitable organizations or stuff, sometimes we see this happen and we call it donor fatigue. Donor fatigue. How many have heard that phrase before? Anybody? Okay, see? In first service, nobody knew. Second service, you guys, you guys are on the ball. Okay. But donor fatigue is what happens. So, for example, when a disaster happens in the world, and if it's the right disaster, and it's the disaster that gets the headlines and, and, and has the good pictures and the good stories about it, and it's a people group that happen to be visible and the ones that the world is caring about at that time, then you can set up you know any kind of the Red Cross or, or whoever, whatever, Doctors Without Borders, they get set up some kind of an account, and money just pours in, right? Or on a smaller level, it can be a GoFundMe account, and people go, I'm going to help because this this is going to have meaning, and I'm going to pour in donations, and thousands and thousands of dollars can, sometimes millions of dollars can come in to help a disaster, because everybody goes, look, I am doing this, I am taking this action, and together we're going to change the world, and we're going to fix this disaster, and it's going to feel good, and it's going to have meaning, and it does, and it's good, and then another disaster happens, and people go, well, okay, we're going to do this one now, and we're going to gather together, and we're going to pour money in, we're just going to, and okay, all right, oh, and now there's another one, and now there's one over here, and there's one over here, and now 10 disasters later, people just go, I, I'm tapped out. They call it donor fatigue. and It's not that people don't care. It's just that they're tabbed out. They don't, it's not just money, it's they don't have the emotional energy to care either. And so you, you, you remember that we had, you know, the European heat wave in 2003. Okay, we're gonna, we're gonna help. And then in 2004, there was the Indian Ocean tsunami. Oh my, we gotta, we gotta help. And then in 2005, there's Hurricane Katrina in the States. And Oh, my goodness, look at that disaster. And then it just keeps on going. And in 2010, you had the earthquake in Haiti. In 2011, you had the East Africa drought. And, and there's all kinds of other disasters that I haven't even mentioned today. And we give and we raise awareness or we change our behaviors and all of that until we just finally all hit a wall and we hit what's called donor fatigue or even a bigger version of that. Because it's just basically come to well, it's just not changing the world, though. All that we're doing isn't fixing it. All of our knowledge isn't isn't fixing everything. In fact it barely fixes anything. So then the best we can come up with is well, you know, I, I can't fix everything, but I can help this person at this time and I guess that matters. And it does. It does. It does. And then every now and then, all of us, the whole world, or some community, we manage to come together, and we finally manage to actually get on the same page, and and we manage together to create some kind of a big change, you know, like the end of apartheid, or or the end of the closing of, of forced residential schools, or or on social media you have the Let's Talk movement, which gives uh, a validity and and some understanding for people struggling with with mental illness, or the Me Too movement, which gives a voice for for people that are being uh, harassed or abused, and and that's good when that happens, but you can understand it, right? When the writer of Ecclesiastes just goes, looks at everything that's wrong, all the suffering, all the injustice, all the systemic oppression, all of the inequality of the world and just goes, "I, there's something fundamentally wrong here. And, 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 I, and, and there's this behavior, and it's rooted in envy, and it's rooted in a misuse of power, and, and even the best people get corrupted by money. And his conclusion is that knowing more, knowing good and evil, knowing evil is not a good thing. It doesn't help. And he comes to this conclusion that the happiest people are the ones who were never born because they never saw it. Wisdom, apparently, is not all it's cracked up to be. How many are excited you came to church this morning? Hey. And so he ends up landing in this place of kind of accept your limitations, recognize your limitations. And so he says in chapter 7, verse 13, consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? And the answer is nobody. When times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider this God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, Nobody can discover anything about their future. That's a limitation. Can't control your future. Can't know your future. In this meaningless life of mine, I have seen both of these. The righteous perishing in their righteousness and the wicked living long in their wickedness, which isn't fair and doesn't make sense. And I don't get it, but it happens and you can't change it. So he goes, don't be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? Because all your good efforts won't fix everything, but he says, "Don't go the other way. Don't be over wicked and and don't be too uh, don't be a fool. Because why die before your time? You know, don't don't just do nothing. It's good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. Whoever fears God will will avoid all extremes. This is where he lands. This is the inspiring place that he lands in his search for meaning, the meaning of life. You know, work can't find it there. Pleasure can't find it there." Wisdom, wisdom, even if you say it in a deep voice, like wisdom, and actually make it sound noble and all of that, all it does is just reveal how much you don't know. All it does is show how much you can't fix. All it does is show how much you really can't control. And so he just throws his hands up and goes, Listen, uh, go for a little bit of everything and avoid all extremes because it's all meaningless anyway. That's where he lands in, in his search for the meaning of life. It's not a very satisfying conclusion it probably would not make it to the top 10 list of you know leadership books in the new york times right just try a little of everything it's all meaningless it's not the advice that you're going to hear from from steve jobs or from bill gates or from even mother teresa or rosa parks or or sheryl sandberg they're not going to say well you know i mean try they're not going to do that. But here's the problem with all of it, with all of his exploration and all of his search for meaning and everything that he's trying to do. Here's where the problem is, okay? Because I promise you we're going we're gonna to land somewhere better with hope because I've dropped most of you into a deep hole of despair right now. So I promise you I'm going to bring you out, okay? Turn the person beside you go, she's going to bring us out, okay? She's gonna, I won't leave you there, okay? Because here's the problem with his search for meaning. And with his exploration, and even in this noble pursuit of wisdom, here's the problem with the whole, th- the goal, it seems, was to be like God. And, and by being like God, to have the illusion of control, to actually have control over everything and over life and over all that happens and and to have it all figured out all the answers all the solutions and it's pretty smug goal actually for him to actually think that he actually could get there at all and go well I've just I've got all the answers now and so it's fine I can control everything and really I suspect that at its deepest level if the goal is to be like God the underlying goal is because if I if I can be like God and I have all the knowledge and I can fix everything and I control everything, then I'm like God and actually I don't, I don't really need God. And now we're back at the Garden of Eden. That brings us back to this moment in the Garden of Eden where we have to make a decision. Do I want to know God or do I want to be like God? Do I want to know God? Or do I want to try to be like God and know everything and have everything and control everything and fix everything, which, by the way, not going to work? And it seems that finally he does understand this a little bit, this writer in Ecclesiastes, because here's where he lands at the end of Ecclesiastes. It's in chapter 12, starting at verse 1. He says, don't let the excitement of youth cause you to forget your creator. Honor God in your youth before you grow old and say, life is not pleasant anymore. And then he says, remember God. Okay, can you just say that with me? Ready? Because it's going to be repeated a bunch of times, so you might as well say it with me. Ready? Remember God before the light of the sun and the moon and the stars is dim to your old eyes and rain clouds continually darken your sky. Ready? Say it with me. Remember, God, before your legs, the guards of your house start to tremble, and before your shoulders, the strong men stoop. Ready? Remember, God, before your teeth, your few remaining servants stop grinding. (laughs) And before your eyes, the women looking through the windows, see dimly. This guy's a poet. Ready? Remember God before the door to life's opportunities is closed and the sound of work fades. Now you rise at the first chirping of the birds, but then all their sounds will grow faint. Ready? Remember God before you become fearful of falling. And worry about danger in the streets. Before your hair turns white like an almond tree in bloom. Some of you are already there. Got some beautiful almond trees here today. And you drag along without energy like a dying grasshopper. And the caperberry no longer inspires sexual desire. Does it say that in the Bible? I didn't know it said that in the Bible. It does. Remember God. Come on, say it with me. Remember God. Before you near the grave, your everlasting home, where the mourners will weep at your funeral. Yes, remember your Creator now, while you're young, before the silver cord of life snaps and the golden bowl is broken. Don't wait until the water jar is smashed at the spring and the pulleys broken at the well, for then the dust will return to the earth. And the spirit will return to God who gave it. And here we go, verse 13. That's the whole story. Here now is my final conclusion. Fear God and obey his commands for this is everyone's duty. After it's all said and done, remember God. Remember God, after it's all said and done, let's have it on the screens, remember God. Not separate from all this other stuff, but in all this other stuff, in our work, in our pleasure, in our knowledge, in our seeking after wisdom, in everything else that is considered in Ecclesiastes, remember God. Because all of it is meaningless if it's separate from God. All of it has no no significance. It doesn't actually land anywhere. Not in the long term. It's not going to do anything. But with God, finally owning the fact that I'm not God, I don't have all the control. I can't fix everything. I don't know all the answers. and, And even if I could, even if I did know all the answers, I still wouldn't be able to apply them all and make everything better for everybody all the time. My job is not all the time fully satisfying and giving me my purpose for getting up in the morning. And fun and pleasure is wonderful, but it gets boring eventually or worse. And even knowledge, even wisdom, even maturity, all it does is really show me my limitations. I am definitely not God. And when we acknowledge all of that and finally own, yeah, I'm not God. Well, maybe we should stop trying to be. Maybe we should stop. Maybe instead of trying to be God, maybe we should instead invite God and invite the God who who created us and invite the God who knows exactly who we are and exactly who we are not, and in all these parts of our lives that we're working in, and we're having pleasure in, and we're seeking wisdom in, and all these other things, invite God to be a part of all of them. Maybe we need to remember God. Remember God. Can I give you some help this morning in remembering God? Can I just invite you, I'm going to invite you to close your eyes because it just sort of helps maybe you focus a little bit and just hear words. And I I really would love to, if there was a way for these words to just drop into your soul because I want to just, just read some scriptures that help us to remember God. And, and some of these scriptures are going to be really familiar to some of you. And some of you, it's not going to be that familiar, and that's okay. But, but take it for what it's worth. And we're going to take a few moments and just, just hear some of these scriptures that help us to remember God. You remember? You ready for this? Here we go. With your eyes closed. Genesis 1, way back at the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then God looked over all that he had made, and he saw that it was very good. Remember God. And then you fast forward a few centuries to Abraham. And Genesis 12 says, the Lord had said to Abraham, leave your native country and your relatives and your father's family and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous. And you will be a blessing to others. And all families on earth will be blessed through you. Remember God. And then you fast forward a few more centuries in Genesis chapter 50 is Joseph. And Joseph is at the end of a long story where his brothers did everything they could to destroy him. And and it all got turned around and Joseph made it through. And now his brothers are afraid of him. And he says in chapter 50, Joseph replied, don't be afraid of me. Am I God that I can punish you? No. You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good because that's what God does. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. Then you go forward uh, another few generations and now we're in Exodus 34 and it's Moses and the Lord passed in front of Moses and called out, I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. I am the God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and I am filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. Remember God. Then you fast forward to John chapter 6, and Jesus now is talking. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And then you go forward again to Romans 8. God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God. And are called according to his purpose for them. God brings things together and brings good out of them. He doesn't cause everything, but he can bring good out of anything. Romans 8, no power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And then in Philippians, I am certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finished. I am certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. Remember God. Take a deep breath in as you remember God this morning. We always allow a few moments at the end of our gatherings, the end of our services, to allow ourselves some time to respond and to be shaped by God's word as we close and, and go back to regular life. And we get so tempted so easily to forget God, to leave God in this sacred moment, and then forget God when we go into our regular lives and live as if the meaning of it all depends on what we do and, and depends on our work or our pleasure or our knowledge or whatever else. And, but none of that is certain. None of that can take God's place. And if we try to put it in God's place, we're going to find it to be inadequate disappointing. Can I make a suggestion to you this morning? Maybe invite the God who loves you. Maybe invite the God who knows you. Maybe invite the God who created you, who knows exactly who you are and who who you are not. Maybe invite that God to be the meaning. Maybe invite that God, whether for the first time, Or for the 100,000th time, invite that God into the week that you have coming towards you. Into your work. Into your family. Into your bank account. Into all of the things that make up part of your regular life. Maybe remember God. And invite him into all of that. Just whisper a prayer, just saying, God, help me to remember you this week. Be a part of all I'm doing this week. Help me to find the meaning in you. Come, oh God, how great.